I want to start off, got a question for you. Um, hit that first slide for me there, Brandon. I want, I want feedback on how you print. We got about five or six words up here. I want your feedback on how you actually pronounce some of these words up here. First one, how is it? Milk. milk. Any milk out there, as if it's an E, we got one. There's more out there and they just don't know it. And those people we call sinners. Next word, hit me up. Caramel? Did I hear a caramel over? Caramel. Yeah, it's caramel. Next one. Pajamas or pajamas? Pajam yeah, it's right. Josie, you're right. It is pajamas. Next one. Hit me up. Syrup? What the hollers of Kentucky's going on over there? Oh my goodness, all right. Aunt? We got a strong aunt in the front. We don't go by that in our house, we just go with TT. It makes it simpler, it's just TT. Anyway. Pecan? Pecan? Yeah, Marette, you're right. Pecan, yeah. yeah. Next one. All right, what is it? Habakkuk or Habak Habakkuk? Habakkuk, Habakkuk. When you actually Google it, you get both pronunciations. You can find both, which is interesting. Actually, we were hanging out with the Marshalls this morning, and I asked them how they pronounce it. I said, hey, pronounce H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. And there's a difference between the two of them. And they actually created marital strife. There was an impromptu marital counseling session that went down. So um, we can and should be praying for the Marshalls, for sure. Um, no, I go by, I, I say Habakkuk. So that's what you're going to get from me the whole time because it's right. Um, but hey, uh, you may be asking, why in the world are we studying Habakkuk? And it's because I want to bore you over the next three weeks. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I know um, this is probably a book of the Bible that a lot of you may have not, you may have read, but you may not have studied a whole lot. And I'm actually incredibly thrilled and uh, really impassioned right now to jump into the book of Habakkuk the next three weeks. And I just want to take a look at the three main reasons why we should be studying Habakkuk. These are the three main reasons that we're going to be focusing on over the next three weeks. And I think really the three main points that I think God's trying to communicate through this uh, book uh, in the Minor Prophets. And so if you could throw up the three main reasons right there, that'd be good. So the first one is to see the character of God. We're going to be focusing on a few of the characteristics of God that we see in Habakkuk. Um, Obviously, we can't cover them all, but we will be honing in on a few. Next one is we want to see power and purpose. We will see the power and purpose in lamenting, which we will focus on way more next week, which I'm actually really excited. And you're like, lamenting, what is that? Um, we actually get a really good window into how to, I think, effectively and intentionally lament with God. Uh, and the final one is we see the gospel. Uh, I know when you saw Habakkuk, there may have been a few of you who were like, man, give me some Jesus. Give me a little NT in the house. Where's the New Testament at, right? Um, we will see the New Testament. We will see the gospel. We will see Jesus clearly and plainly in the message that is found in Habakkuk. So let me, uh, let me open up with prayer here. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And we do thank you that it's living and active. Lord, and I pray boldly that there will be a joy that swells up inside of our spirit as we study your word. Lord, that there will be an excitement as we see the gospel 
written throughout the book of Habakkuk. Lord, thank you for the hope we have in you, Lord. I pray that we will be overwhelmed at the hope, the joy, and love that can be only found in you. Lord, I pray it be you that is, I pray that it will be you that um, will be speaking through me tonight, that your word would go forth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can turn to Habakkuk here. As we jump in. But uh, let's set it up a little bit. So who is Habakkuk? We actually don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. We know that he is a prophet. Um, We know that he lived during the spiritual reform under under King Josiah. And so if you were to study the book of Judges, you'll see it's one of these roller coaster rides with the, the people of Israel right? Where really it's contingent upon the leadership of that king on whether or not there's, there's spiritual rich, richness or spiritual depravity. And previous to Josiah, there was 50 plus years of moral and spiritual depravity. They were very much on the decline and they did whatever they thought was good in, the, in their own eyes. But then, come in, uh, then Josiah comes into the picture and for about 30 years, we see that, see that there is a spiritual revival that pl- takes place specifically with the kingdom of Judah, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, But then we know that, well, I'll I'll get to that in a little bit. We do know that, again, Habakkuk is a prophet. And usually um, what what is unique about when we study Habakkuk, um, prophets are people that declare the word of the Lord. They receive a word from from the Lord, and then it's a declaration to the people, specifically Israel. And we know that this book is unique because prophets usually talk to people about God, where Habakkuk talks to God about people. We know that prophets usually make declarations, and here we see Habakkuk is truly just having a dialogue with God. So as we open the book of Habakkuk, we're going to see this intimate conversation that Habakkuk has with God, and we are privy to that tonight as we jump into it. So time and setting, let's, let's kind of break this down a little bit so we know the context of what has led up to this point of Habakkuk because it's very important to understand. So we know in Genesis 12 and 15, we see the Abrahamic covenant take place between God and Abraham, which was this unilateral covenant that was made, again, between God and Abraham. Unilateral meaning that there was agreement made between two parties, but only one party was responsible to act, that party being God. And in this covenant, we we find three promises made to Abraham. One was the promise of land, that being Canaan a land that was described as flowing with as like milk, a ton of milk and honey that's flowing throughout the land. We see the second promise being um, descendants as numerous as the stars. And the third promise being that the, um, the descendants, the, all, all the people will be blessed and redeemed through the people, through the descendants of Abraham. Obviously, um, the climactic point being that of Jesus Christ. And so we see this unilateral covenant that is made between, again, God and Abraham in Genesis 12, 15. Exodus, we find that the people of Israel have been enslaved for over 400 years. And Moses is upset about this. And he goes and he has this confrontation with God. And at the very beginning of Exodus, we see that God says that he who has promised is faithful, that I am a God of covenant. I will fulfill my promise. He's already fulfilled one of those. We know that there's over 2 million Israelites that are enslaved. And so this, the, the, the people group has grown. But we see this, 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 um, the, the covenant reiterated multiple times in Exodus. And then in Exodus 19, 3 and 6, it says this, thus you, shall, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob 
and tell the son of Israel, you yourselves have, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He is calling them to be a chosen people, a people that is set apart, a people that is to be a reflection of who God is to the world, which we'll jump into with greater depth here a little bit later. So we see the Israelite people free from uh, the bondage of slavery in Egypt and settle in the land of Canaan, that land that was promised to them about 40 years later, right? They wandered in the wilderness 40 years, and they end up in Canaan. And then about, fast forward a, a few hundred more years, about 1,000 BC, we see that, that David had been leading the 12 tribes of Israel, but we see that that falls apart after the death of Solomon, his son. And so what happens then is that the, the 10 northern tribes of the Israelite people is, is now has, have separated from the two southern tribes. The 10 northern tribes are considered the kingdom of Israel. The two southern ones, the kingdom of Judah. And in the kingdom of Judah, we see the capital of Jerusalem. The two tribes in the kingdom of Judah are Judah and, and Benjamin. And what we see at 722 BC, we see the Assyrian empire, the most powerful empire of the day, destroy and decimate the kingdom of Israel, the northern 10 tribes, and they take them into exile. The southern two tribes, the kingdom of, of Judah, escape but not unscathed. They are very aware of the kingdom of Assyria and what took place to the 10 northern tribes. Are you tracking so far? So then what we, this kind of leads us up to where we're at in Habakkuk. Somewhere around 609 B, BC, we know that the fall has begun that King Josiah has died, and in about five years, there's complete moral and spiritual depravity amongst the kingdom of Judah. And during this time, the kingdom of Babylonia, Babylonian is rising up, and they're soon to take over the kingdom of Assyria. And so this is where we are at. Everyone good? Let's take a look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1. says the prophecy, or in a lot of texts you'll see the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. So he received this word from the Lord, which when you look at oracle, it means burden. This is a heavy thing that, that Habakkuk has received. And we know that Habakkuk is about to go into speaking of Judah based upon following verses. So he's speaking about Judah here, verses two through four. Habakkuk says, how long, Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen. I love the authenticity, the realness, how genuine he is in his lament. And I think we can learn from him. And I think in this, we, get, we, we are given the permission to come before God hurting and broken and lamenting and asking the question why. But let's go on here. It says, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This is speaking about the kingdom of Judah, not about the Babylonian empire, the kingdom of Judah. Check out these words that he uses to describe Judah in these short verses. Violence, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, Violence again, strife, conflict, laws paralyzed, justice never prevails, wicked, hem in the righteous, justice is perverted. That is not a good summary. That is not a good description of the kingdom of Judah. Would you agree? And he comes before him saying, dude, what's up? 
We see, if you were to look at one of Habakkuk's um, contemporaries um, in Micah 6.8, we see ultimately they're failing to live out the verse that we see in Micah 6.8. Anyone know what that is? Someone hit me up. He, he highlights three things in this verse. So what was that? Yeah. Act justly, love what? Mercy and walk what? Humbly with my Lord. They are failing miserably to do this. In a nutshell, they are failing to fulfill the great commandment, to love God and love others. They're failing miserably amongst their own people. All of this is describing the people of, Ju- of Judah as in, in their interaction with other people in Judah. And so he's burdened because he doesn't see a thread of decency, integrity, humility, or justice. But he is also burdened by the fact that they are not fulfilling the call that was given to them to be God's chosen people, a reflection of who God is to the world. He's burdened by that. Again, Exodus 19, 19, three through six, I already stated this, but it says, I wanna read it again. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be what? A kingdom of priests to the nation. And this is not just a message we see in Exodus, but a message we see throughout the Bible. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land. This is spoken to Abraham, which I show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He wants to use, he's inviting the people again to be a reflection of who he is to the world. He wants them to be a blessing. He wants to be a conduit of his love and the gospel. In Matthew 5, 13 and 14, we are familiar with these verses. He calls us to be, Jesus speaking to the disciples specifically as they're overlooking this huge crowd, saying, be salt and light. You need to be salt and light. I'm inviting you into this. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 17, 18, and then going on to 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 1, 5 through 7. I want to read those. But um, I want to read from the NLT. I really like the translation. Starting in chapter 3, it says, Now the Lord is a spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, he gives freedom. And all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the spirit of the Lord works in us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory even more. So this is what it says at the end of of 2 Corinthians 3. It goes on and it says this, Paul says this. And so since God in his mercy has given us this wonderful ministry, again, the ministry of being his chosen people, when we accept Christ, we are grafted into the kingdom of Israel and we are called to be a kingdom of priests. This is the ministry he's given us. We never give up, it says. We don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus, the Lord. All we say about ourselves is that we are your servants because of what Jesus has done for us. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness have made us understand that this light is is the brightness of the glory of God, his holy perfection on display that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And check this out. But this precious treasure, the light and power that now shine within us is held in perishable containers that is in our weak bodies. So everyone can see that our glorious power is from God is in us, not our own. So we see it there. And then in conclusion to this, um, we see in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, and, or sorry, in um, Hebrews 7 and 1 Peter 2, we see the priesthood of all believers. 
And again, we who put faith in Christ are that. So this is not a message we just see in Exodus where he's saying, hey, you chosen people during this period of time, be salt and light, be a reflection of my glory to the world. This is a message from Genesis through the end. And we are invited into that. And so he's burdened by no, again, there's not a single thread of decency, humility, um, love, grace found in him, but they're also not fulfilling the call of being God's chosen people. And so it comes to this point Ultimately, where there is great sin and evil, right? We're seeing this. There's a covenantal unfaithfulness. And so ultimately, he is asking God this first question. Where are you at? What are you going to do about this? Where are you at, God? What are you going to do about this? And let's see how God responds here. In Habakkuk 1.5, it says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are, law, they, they are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. This is the Babylonian Empire. So it's quite interesting to see how God responds. He is raising up the equivalent of ISIS in the Babylonian Empire to destroy and bring judgment to the kingdom of Judah. It's interesting to to look at his response then. It says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Verse 12, my God, my holy one, will will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish Your ways are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He cannot be in union with this sin, this evil. And Habakkuk struggles with this, though, because of what he knows is going to tap into his people. It says, if the cure is worse than the condition, the remedy is worse than the disease. And and this leads to him to posing this next question to him in 13b, where he says, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked sorry why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves so the second question that Habakkuk asks of God is what are you going to do about the wider wrong the wider evil in this world why do you tolerate it not just the evil the sin the depravity in my chosen people the kingdom of Judah but why do you tolerate the wider evil in the world. I think we've all been there. We've been faced with injustice and it hits hard. And we ask God the question, why? And more importantly, what are you going to do about it? Habakkuk asks asks this question. God follows up with this in chapter two. If you take a look here, we're going to read verses one through three, kind of skip ahead here a little bit. I love this, and we're going to take a look at this way more in depth next week, but I I, got to read this verse. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, so what God is going, how he will reply, and what 
and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So we don't know how much time passes between him stating that and God's response. But here we see God's response starting in verse 2 to his question of why the greater evil? And what are you going to do about it? Why do you tolerate it? This is significant. Do not miss this. I think we all need reminded of this tonight. He says, he says, dude, write down this revelation and make it plain on tablets. So, dude, make this permanent. I don't want this to be something you just remember, but, but bust out your chisel, get that tablet, and you're going to write this down. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So what he's about to say, it's going to linger a while, but it's, it's coming. It's coming. Write this down, though. Because every generation from now to the end will experience evil. They will be confronted with depravity, with sin, with evil, with their own wrongdoings. Every generation, we face it now. And he says, I want every single generation to be confronted with this truth, with this promise. You ask why I tolerate, what am I going to do about it? Here's the answer. Pay attention. May this be passed on from generation to generation. And we're going to take a look at the five woes. We see a woe here in verse 6, 9, 12, 15, and 19. Yeah, that's five. Did I say six? Five, six. It's five. Can't count. But it's five. We got five woes here, right? And ultimately, we need to understand what woe means. Woe means, what he says in saying woe is that there will be an end. There is going to be a finality to these things. So these things, when he says woe, it's this horrible thing that's going to come to an end. We need to understand that. That's important in this, in, in, as we understand this text. So the first woe. He says woe to, in, in verse 6 here. It says, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and make himself wealthy by extortion. This is the person who abuses power to accumulate wealth. It will be stopped. Verse 9, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. This is the person who wants to build a power base and will do anything to achieve this. It will be stopped. It will come to an end. Man, I just want to tell you, when I was a... Uh, this hit me hard. I was studying this at Chick-fil-A this past Friday. And as I'm reading this, I'm actually so encouraged because I'm in the midst of a, a season that's just burdensome. And I got reminded of these promises that I'm literally weeping as I'm reading the word. And this, because Chick-fil-A is so perfect, this Chick-fil-A person comes up to me and says, how can I help you? I was like, man, this food is just so good. <laughs> Praise the good shepherd. I'm just rejoicing. But I was seriously at Chick-fil-A just weeping over the promises that are found in here because of the confrontation we have with evil and sin, depravity. Anyways, let's go on. Verse 12 here. It says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. This is the person who counts human life of little value, a disposable obstacle that's only in their way. It will be stopped. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. This is the person who is the abuser of drugs to abuse women and children, the rapist and the pornographer. It will be stopped. There's an end coming to it, praise the Lord. And woe to him 
in verse 19, who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. This is the person who is deeply entrenched in idol worship. To use this is the person who elevates people, places, things, and even themselves above God. This will come to an end. It will be stopped. So here God communicates that he will deal with evil with finality, that he will overthrow it in the end. And the dimensions of that evil, again, are brought to an end. And these include, again, I just want to summarize this. I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but this is a list that is very powerful, that which, where I think a lot of the sin, the evil, the depravity could be fit underneath one of these categories. The financial and political corruption, the cheapening and devaluing of human life, the oppression of people, satanic seduction in the sexual realm, idolatry in which man is placed on the center and up high on a throne. I am sick of the evil that I see in front of me. I'm sick of it. And there's hope that we have in this. There's a finality that is coming. And it will be obliterated and substituted as we see in verse 14. So sandwiched between all of these woes, check this out in verse 14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And as we look at this, we know... And we're going to jump to Isaiah 11 here again. Man, that last time I preached, I had two Bibles this week, 11, or three. Praise the Lord, man. It's super spiritual tonight. Um, But check this out. We know, based upon, if we do a little homework, we know that, that God's just not talking about the end to the Babylonian empire and the evil that is right there. But when we take a look at, again, one of his contemporaries, uh, a prophet in Isaiah in, in, in chapter 11. Check out these verses. So leading up to this point in Isaiah 11, we, it talks about the Babylonian empire coming to the end and the exiled people of Jerusalem returning so they can worship God as one man. So he's talking about this, but he takes a break in that to talk about what's to come at the end time, the day of the Lord, when Jesus Christ returns. This is what Isaiah speaks, which complements what Habakkuk just spoke to us in chapter 2. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's Jesus. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decides what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Then check this out. This is what is coming then. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on, on my holy mountain. For check this out, what we see in Habakkuk. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. The day of the Lord is coming. And I encourage you to at some point go back to the sermon series that, that Kimball led us in, in the day of the Lord. But this here, this speaks to the fact that this is not just about the end of the evil that is in front of them with the Babylonian empire. This is the end of evil, depravity, sin, the wrongdoings, the ways that we fall short at the end. And praise the Lord for that. So this is ultimately God's answer to Habakkuk on why do you tolerate? He says, I don't. 
An end is coming. And praise the Lord for that. Man, it is easy to shy away from the subject of God's judgment for a million reasons that I'm not going to get into. I think one of the reasons the church has fallen short in the way that we have communicated judgment to the world. But when the Bible's teaching about judgment is dismissed, all victims of injustice, violence, and oppression are then put at risk. We have to realize that. If God is a God of love without the accountability of justice, then vulnerable people will become just more vulnerable. And bullies are encouraged just to bully all the more. And if God cannot send sin and death and evil to hell, sin, evil, and death win. We have to realize that. There has to be a penalty for sin, for evil, for death. Otherwise, it wins. Send it away forever. But check this out. This is what's so cool. If we were to rewind in Habakkuk 2, check out what we find in verse 4, which we know this verse from Romans 1.17. And in Romans 1.17, it says, such as it is written... Speaking of, this is actually found in Habakkuk first. Check out what we see in Habakkuk 2, 4b. He starts off with this. Before all the woes, all this evil that comes to the end, he says, the righteous will live by their faith. The message of the gospel is found here. What is, what is displayed with the, the evil that comes to the end in Babylonian is only a picture of what is to come at the very end that can only come through Jesus Christ. But also our salvation, more importantly. For the wages of sin is death. There's judgment that is coming to us. Freedom from that judgment can only be found in putting our faith in Jesus Christ. The just will live by their faith. This is the promise we find in this. It's Habakkuk pointing to the gospel 600 years ahead. And what the day of the Lord will, ha- will, will look like. The just will live by, his faith, by their faith. There is a consequence for their sin. And the evidence is obvious that we fall short. We cannot be perfect. We cannot be holy enough. We cannot be set apart to attain the salvation that can only come through putting our faith in Jesus Christ. God judges sin, and the wages of sin, again, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the book of Habakkuk has a message of judgment. But more importantly, there's a message of hope. And that there's a message of sin having a finality. That in the end, it will not win. And again, this is our hope and joy. So when we put our faith in Christ, we acknowledge that God, through your son, Jesus Christ, that judgment passes over us and is nailed to Jesus on the cross and is erased from our life. As far as the sin is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, he can see our sin no more. See, that judgment of being guilty is passed over us. And we are now seen righteous. We are declared justified through our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And praise the Lord for this. Kimball, uh, Christine, you can come on up. Man, the, the, when we think about the historicity of Christ, there's so much validity in it. Jesus Christ was a real person. And when you look at the way he lived, he taught, he died, and rose again you see that there's so much trustworthiness in saying that this is, this is not what just I, I this is not just what I, I live, um, this is not the reason why I live, but also the reason why I live, what I live for. Think about this, the way Jesus lived. He thought about the marginalized, the least of these. 
He lived his life to love others, for he did not come to serve but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for others. Think about the way he taught. If you were to just take the Sermon on the Mount, that would just be footnotes um, to just a book on ethics and morality at any, at, at any, any college education course that you would take. The way that he died as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is how he lived. And when he rose again, he conquered death. Because he was perfect, he could take the atonement of sin. The blood of Jesus Christ atones us. It covers over our wrongdoings. And because of those four, th- four reasons, there's reason to have so much trustworthiness in the life of Jesus Christ. And I just want to close out with this. We know this verse well, these verses well. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. It says, when this happens, when our perishable earthly bodies have been transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die, then at the last scripture will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen to that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for, again, your love for us. We thank you for the atonement of our sins that can only come through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the book of Habakkuk. Lord, I thank you for the promise that we see and the hope that we can find in you. And not just a life eternal, but that there's a finality to the evil and the corruption and the injustice that we see in this world today. Thank you, God. Thank you that that is coming to an end. I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day that you wipe away every single tear. Lord, may your justice reign. May the gospel go forth. May there be many people who put their faith in Christ before your return. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.